0: Welcome to Foundation Christian Church. We're glad that you're joining us for today's message. For service times or to join a disciple group, please visit foundationcitrusheights.com. Anybody ever lived in a quirky house where there were two light switches that had to be turned on for a plug to work, that if just one of them wasn't on? Okay, we've lived in a couple houses where there were quirkiness, there were Somebody at some point thought this was genius. You know what makes an excellent sermon? There are two switches. The people are either impressed with themselves, switch off, or impressed with Christ, switch on. And then the preacher, has to make the choice, am I impressed with self, switch off, or impressed with Christ, switch on, and during the third song, the way you guys were singing, I realized I actually know in advance whether a sermon's going to be good or not, you guys know that? When I was 19 in Bible college learning how to preach, I I thought it was like a noodle that you had to throw it against the wall to see if it stuck. And 19 years later, I am saying, no, 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 no. When the people in the room desperately love their Savior and they listen to their Savior's word, good things happen. We already know it's going to be good. We love the Lord and the word's open. So let's go. Let's go. If you happen to be new, uh, let me bring you up to speed. We're, this is the second to last week of us doing Daniel. We did the first half of Daniel in the summer. We're doing this last half of Daniel now. This is a book that was written, oh, I don't know. I haven't done my studies since early summer, six, 700 years before Jesus, something like that. And the first half of the book is these amazing stories of people who love God, but none of the culture does. And that's why I titled the series Shining in Babylon. I also titled that because a big church with an in-house artist called it Shining in Babylon, and we stole their artwork. So hallelujah for spirit-sprinkled thievery. So, but th- that really is what the book is about. You're in Babylon. The context is dark. Nobody loves God except this tiny little group of people the temple is not functioning. This isn't culturally normal. You're not getting boys at work for the God that you were, And maybe even thrown into a furnace, right? Stuff that is beyond what we can imagine. And so these stories of heroism fill the first half of the book. And because they're so awesome, they tend to fill a children's Sunday school. If you had the privilege of growing up in church... Raise your hand if you have lots of memories about Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. This is what we tend to do as Sunday school teachers. We're like, God created the world, then Moses was in a basket, Daniel was amazing, and Jesus is here! Yay! And and that's kind of our Old Testament survey when we're teaching second graders. Uh, Daniel always gets more than an honorable mention because those stories are so clear, so brave. And and, and rightly so. They should be cherished stories. This back half is harder because they are not stories of what Daniel went through. They are visions that God gave Daniel and he even told Daniel on multiple occasions, hey, this is for the distant future, just write it down. Could you imagine? I, I, I can imagine it probably more easily than you. It's a Thursday and God gives you the most amazing sermon and he says you're not allowed to preach that Sunday or the Sunday after, or the Sunday after. Actually, Greg, you're going to serve me for 30 years. You're going to retire. You're going to die. 600 years from now, what you wrote down is going to come true, and it's going to build up the faith of the church. As Americans, we kind of have a microwave time frame, Right? Part of Daniel's ministry was, hey, this is going to build up the faith of the people of God, but it's going to be six centuries plus before the ministry starts to have effect. Wow. Well, we, we are blessed. We're on this side of the occurrence of many of the things that Daniel prophesied. We still anticipate uh, some of them. Anyway, this is a long text of one story, lots of bad stuff happening. And when it gets right down to it, there are only about five verses that I'm gonna dial in and actually preach because most of this is literally just a vision that Daniel has. And then a few hundred years later, it happens. Now, let me say one, uh, one historical note. Chapters 10 and 11. Have I been saying 10? I'm sorry, 11. Chapters 11 and 12 of Daniel so accurately report before it happened what happened, of which wars in the breakup of the Greek Empire becomes the Seleucid empire, this that and blah 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 blah. all of the specific details are reported so accurately that it became very popular in the 19th century, so-called liberal theologians that 's just somebody who does not really believe God is God, does not believe in prophecy, doesn't believe God is powerful enough to do what he does, but still for some perverse reason wants to study the Bible a lot and call himself a theologian. It became really popular in the 19th century to say Daniel was written during the Maccabee period. It was written as if, it was written in future tense, as a stylistic, it's it's the most nonsense argument. I don't just don't know how to, to, to be nice toward that view. It's just nonsense. And everybody who's a scholar who actually loves Jesus says that theory is nonsense. No, God told Daniel hundreds of years before it happened, Daniel wrote it down. And may I just submit, if God doesn't even know the future, how powerful is this God that we're saying can create matter and energy out of nothing? Like, let's take a deep breath in, take a deep breath, breath out, and, and go back to your life sciences class in 10th grade and ask yourself, what is harder, to create and manipulate matter out of nothing or to create and manipulate time out of nothing? There's no difference, guys. There's no difference, matter, energy, time. You and I cannot create it or alter it in any way. So it is faithlessness. It is not trusting God when God does something where he can easily see the future and determine the future, and we go, I'm not so sure. Okay, you don't trust God. And I'm not saying that because I'm mad at you. It's because we all struggle with trusting God. Let's just call it what it is. We're, We're struggling with trusting God in this moment. So let's lay it down at Jesus' feet like we do all of our doubts, right? Okay, let's read Daniel chapter 11. We will read largely something that already happened more than 2,000 years ago, but there are some absolute nuggets in here that still really call the 21st century church to action, and that's what I'm going to base this sermon off of. Actually, so verse 1 of 11, different translations have taken this away. So, So your Bible at verse 11, it might say verse 2 at chapter 11. Let's go up one verse to make sure we included everything. I have been standing, this messenger, who's been trying to bring the truth of this vision to Daniel, I've been standing besides Michael to support and strengthen him since the first year of the reign of Darius the Mede. Now then, I will reveal the truth to you. Three more Persian kings will reign to be succeeded by a fourth, far richer than the others. He will use his wealth to stir up everyone to fight against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king will rise to power who will rule with great authority and accomplish everything he sets out to do. But at the height of his power, his kingdom will be broken apart and divided into four parts. This is almost certainly Alexander the Great dying young. Didn't have any children who could cede the throne. He had some, but not that could take the throne. His four generals divide up the kingdom. Uh, It will not be ruled by the king's descendants, nor will the kingdom hold the authority it once had, for his empire will be uprooted and given to others. The king of the south will increase in power, but one of his own officials will become more powerful than he and will rule his kingdom with great strength. Some years later, an alliance will be formed between the king of the north and king of the south. The daughter of the king of the south will be given in marriage to the king of the north to secure the alliance, but she will lose her influence over him and so will her father. She will be abandoned along with her supporters. But then one of her relatives But when one of her relatives becomes king of the south, he will raise an army and enter the fortress of the king of the north and defeat him. When he returns to Egypt, he will carry back their idols with him, along with priceless articles of gold and silver for some years afterward he will leave the king of the north alone later the king of the north will invade the realm of the king of the south but will soon return to his own land however the sons of the king of the north will assemble a mighty army that will advance like a flood and carry the battle as far as the enemy's fortress then in a rage the king of the south will rally against the vast forces assembled by the king of the north and will defeat them After the enemy army is swept away, the king of the south will be filled with pride and will execute many thousands of his enemies, but his success will be short-lived. A few years later, the king of the north will return with a fully equipped army far greater than before. At that time, there will be a general uprising against the king of the south. Violent men among your own people will join them in fulfillment of this vision, but they will not succeed. Then the king of the north will come and lay siege to a fortified city and capture it. The best troops of the south will not be able to stand in the face of the onslaught. The king of the north will march onward unopposed. None will be able to stop him. So, excuse me, he will pause in the glorious land of Israel, intent on destroying it. He will make plans to come with the might of his entire kingdom and will form an alliance with the king of the south. He will give his daughter in marriage in order to overthrow the kingdom from within, but his plan will fail. That's pretty specific, isn't it? Haven't we heard a number of specific actions? Marriages, to try to get this, try to gain influence, great finances, the size of the army, who wins which battle? A lot of detail here. Verse 18, after this, he will turn his attention to the coastland and conquer many cities, But a commander from another land will put an end to his insolence and cause him to retreat in shame. He will take refuge in his own fortresses, but will stumble and fall and be seen no more. His successor will send out a tax collector to maintain the royal splendor. But after a very brief reign, he will die, though not from anger or in battle. Specific. Wow. Huh. The next to come to power will be a despicable man who is not in line for royal succession. He will slip in when least expected and take over the kingdom by flattery and intrigue. Before him, great armies will be swept away, including a covenant prince. With deceitful promises, he will make various alliances. He will become strong despite having only a handful of followers. Without warning, he will enter the richest areas of the land. Then he will distribute among his followers the plunder and wealth of the rich, something his predecessors had never done. He will plot the overthrow of strongholds, but this will last only for only a short while. Then he will stir up his courage and raise a great army against the king of the south. The king of the south will go to battle with a mighty army, but to no avail, for there will be plots against him. His own household will cause his downfall. His army will be swept away and many will be killed. Seeking nothing but each other's harm, these kings will plot against each other at the conference table, attempting to deceive each other, but it'll make no difference, for the end will come at the appointed time. Was that a a bomb or what? What we've been hearing for half of a chapter is human beings making their plans and trying to execute their plans, right? We might as well spend a half a chapter going, well, the Republicans made this plan for this election. But four years later, the Democrats had an ace up their sleeve. And then four years later, the Republicans, right? It never stops. Are you hearing this? And in case you didn't already know, this is covering hundreds of years. So when it says the king of the South, it might mean the son or the grandson the last time it said the king of the South. These are these two nations going back and forth over hundreds of years. So it's not just two guys. It's their descendants and their descendants and whoever took over those empires. These two empires going back and forth. Verse 28. The king of the north will then return home with great riches. On the way, he will set himself against the people of the Holy Covenant, doing much damage before continuing his journey. Then at the appointed time, he will once again invade the south. But this time, the result will be different. For warships from western coastlands will scare him off, and he will withdraw and return home. But he will vent his anger against the people of the Holy Covenant and reward those who forsake the covenant. Yikes. His army will take over the temple fortress, pollute the sanctuary, put a stop to the daily sacrifices and set up the sacrilegious object that causes desecration. By the way, not only uh, did Antiochus Epiphanes go in, put an image of himself and Zeus inside the Roman temple and sacrifice a pig, he did every horrible thing you could imagine and slaughtered a bunch of Jews. He did a bunch of terrible things 150 years before Christ. Jesus spoke of the sacrilegious object that causes desecration. Jesus spoke of it in the future tense. As in, it has not happened yet. It's going to happen at the end. So this is another example of prophetic literature echoing. There is a near-term fulfillment of the prophecy. Antiochus Epiphanes did this. And yet, everything he did is a foreshadow of what Antichrist is going to do. We know that, not from us looking at Daniel, but when the second person of the Trinity takes on flesh and says, there's more to come, he doesn't lie, so we trust him. Does that make sense? So Jesus uses this exact phrase in the future tense, talking about the end of all things. So it's already happened, and it's still going to happen again. Verse 32. He will flatter and win over those who have violated the covenant but the people who know their God will be strong and will resist him. Amen. Woo. Wise leaders will give instructions to many. Instruction to many, but these teachers will die by fire and sword, or they will be jailed and robbed. During these persecutions, little help will arrive, and many will join them. Who join them will not be sincere. And some of the wise will fall victim to persecution. In this way, they will be refined and cleansed and be made pure until the time of the end, for the appointed time is still to come. The king will do as he pleases, exalting himself and claiming to be, uh, claiming to be greater than every god, even blaspheming the god of gods. So time out. Um, it's fun. It, it's, there's enough megalomania in the U.S. Again, we don't have anybody higher than the president, so it's really hard to understand a complete dictatorship but even the title president here in our culture was given to you by a majority vote, right? And can you become arrogant when you get that title and go, wow, I'm awesome, I'm amazing? How horrifying would it be if not only our president had the authority to never leave power, but got to give himself additional titles? Antiochus IV was born Antiochus IV. Epiphanes was a name he gave himself. Epiphany, if you've got Catholic roots, you already know this, it means God manifest, God in the flesh. He gives that name to himself. Yikes, is the appropriate response. We think we're God. When we go into God's temple, where everything is supposed to be done his way, and we do everything our way, and we set up an image of ourselves, Guys, Antiochus Epiphanes did it. And so do we. We take all the territory where God has laid claim and say, we're gonna do it my way and you're gonna find human flourishing and blessing and greatest joy and glad obedience to the way I lay things out. And you and I, we go in and we clean house. Actually, we putrefy it. We make everything our way. And in so doing... We take a title onto ourself. I am God. I'm in charge. I'm, I'm, the, command, I'm the master and commander of my own destiny. He did it. We, we do it too. He will succeed, but only until the time of wrath is completed. For what has been determined will surely take place. He will have no respect for the gods of his ancestors or for the God loved by women or for any other God for he will boast that he is greater than them all. Instead of these, he will worship the God of fortresses, a God his ancestors never knew. So he's going to put his trust in military power. We've never seen that before, right? (laughs) Do it all the time. "'Lavish on him gold, silver, precious stones, "'expensive gifts.'" Verse 39, "'Claiming this foreign god's help, "'he will attack the strongest fortresses. "'He will honor those who submit to him, "'appointing them to positions of authority "'and dividing the land among them as their reward. "'Then at the time of the end, "'the king of the south will attack the king of the north. "'The king of the north will storm out "'with chariots, charioteers, and a vast navy. "'He will invade various lands "'and sweep through them like a flood.'" He will enter the glorious land of Israel and many nations will fall, but Moab, Edom, and the best part of Ammon will escape. He will conquer many countries and even Egypt will not escape. He will gain control over the gold, silver, and treasures of Egypt and the Libyans and Ethiopians will be his servants. But then news from the east and the north will alarm him and he will set out in an anger to destroy and obliterate many. He will stop between the glorious holy mountain and the sea and will pitch his royal tents. But while he is there, his time will suddenly run out and no one will help him. We made it. Congratulations, everybody. I know in your Bible reading plan, you didn't make it this far. Let's just be honest. I didn't make it this far. Nobody wants to read this. (laughs) Who is the What? Huh? I don't know. I just don't know, right? Can we go back to where, you know, God doesn't even let a sparrow fall to the ground without seeing it, how much he loves me and he adorns the lilies of the field. Can we go back to that, please? (laughs) So there are texts that are harder to understand than other texts, amen? There are entire genres that are easier to digest than other genres, amen? okay. We're in a toughie, and so we're going to breathe in, we're going to breathe out, and then I'm going to do what I said earlier. We're going to take a handful of principles that are really clear, beautiful, and true across both covenants, before and after the cross, across all time, things that are still true, relevant, powerful, and beautiful to the 21st century folks like us. Sound good? So don't freak out when my sermon only comes from verse 30, verse 32, and verse 35, right? You're not preaching the whole text. Well, because most of it happened already, all right? And when it happens again, you don't have to worry because you're on God's side if you love the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, So, note takers, grab your pens. If you don't have notes, write this in the margin of your Bible next to verse 30. There are always short-term benefits to defying God, Always. There are always short-term benefits to defying God. Let me say it another way. If sin wasn't fun, nobody would do it. I grew up, my church was mostly good, but there there was definitely a tinge of Phariseeism in some of the thought that I grew up in. Or some people tried to say that sin wasn't fun. And maybe it was a linguistic thing. Maybe they're using the word fun instead of like lasting joy. Maybe that's what they were trying to get at. But man, if you're sinning and you're not having fun, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> Guys, there should be lots and lots of fun, if only for a moment. There should be tons of fun. Like, where does the weekend bender come from except that you can take all of the folly this life has to offer, shove it into a 48 hour period, and not feel any guilt or shame until Monday morning? Humans have an incredible ability towards self deception. We gladly listen to the serpent, we want to believe him. He says, you'll find greater joy doing this over here instead of what your father told you, right? Isn't that the very first deception? You could be like God. God's holding out on you. You could know so much. It would be amazing. Guys, Satan didn't even have Google in his back pocket, and he was able to get human beings to disobey God, wanting to know everything. Sin, done rightly, is fun. Lots and lots and lots of short-term fun. And then you know what happens? Every dad blasted time. You know what happens? (laughs) All of a sudden, instead of naked and unashamed, we're naked and ashamed. And we're taking plants that we were supposed to have for our benefit to eat the fruit of it, and we're like, well, these leaves are big grab the leaves off and sew something together. Guys, it's not just a literal historical occurrence that our biological parents sowed fig leaves. It's also a metaphor for something broader. There's intimacy between you and me that's been broken. There's shame there now instead of connection. There's intimacy here between God and me that was unhindered and now it's broken. There's shame. I'm hiding myself. If there is so much shame and so much brokenness, and if all death, disease, pain, deceit, distrust, manipulation of others flows out of rebellion against God in this horrible moment in a garden, then why on earth would we do it? You guys, we weren't in the garden. It would be really easy to judge Adam and Eve and go, all this destruction happened. Why would you do that? The scripture already tells us she was convinced and it looked good to me. The exact same Hebrew language, when Eve looks at the fruit and it looks good to her, they use the the Bible writers, because they're not stupid, use the exact same language later on when Samson's choosing a wife who does not love God. She looks good to me. That's, That's letting the Hebrew reader know how bad things are about to go. Guys, going after a girl because she looks good to you, bad idea. Bad idea, right? I will not ask for raising of hands because it could go bad. But every, every man in this room has seen a woman that with no information other than your eyes, you thought, she's attractive. And then you met her and talked with her and learned about her, and you go, dear God, where's the exit door? Right? Right? <laughs> Because a human being is not just what they look like, amen? You find out her core values are not yours. Your, your faith and hers are two different faiths, different things that are important to you. There are all kinds of reasons. Ladies, you've seen a guy before. You're like, ooh, delish. Until he talked, until you met him. And then you're like, oh, Lord Jesus, save me. Get me out of here. And this is what People Magazine is, pretty much. All the best-looking people proving with horrible decisions and horrible ethics that they can shipwreck their own lives too. So who wants to be famous and rich? Guys, did you just hear that not only Antiochus Epiphanes, but also the Antichrist and every other lowercase Antichrist throughout all history they're going to reward people who violate their covenant with God. You don't just have a sin nature that makes you desire this moment of rebellion. What happens when the leadership will actively reward everybody to walk away from Christ? As Americans, this is a little bit of a foreign language for us. For the last 200 years, 250 years. We've been one of the most Christianity-influenced countries on the face of the earth. So it's a little bit outside. Like we have to go to Fox's Book of Martyrs. We have to read some church history. We have to see what the the Communist Party does in China, especially stories that come out of North Korea. What would it be like if from the very political top, the top of all earthly authority, all money, what if everything upstream from you wanted you to rebel against Christ and would reward it over and against what's already going on spiritually. Look again at verse 30. For warships from western coastlands will scare him off and he will withdraw and return home. But he will vent his anger against the people of the holy covenant and reward those who forsake the covenant. So he's not ignoring those who are faithful. He's raging against those who say, Yahweh is our God and we're not budging. And he rewards everyone who will just walk away. Guys, we're, we shouldn't complain. 20, American culture in 2023 is nowhere near that. But have we seen baby steps in that direction? You can't bake cakes unless you bow the knee. Are you serious? Every Christian who helps to make weddings happen has been put in this really weird place the last 10 years that we've never had to think through before. You're allowed to follow your religion as long as your religion never, ever, ever reminds me that there's a God and authority over me. And if you even hint at it, I'll rage against you, form a boycott, right? Put you out of business. That, that's not Daniel chapter 11, but is it a baby step? Yeah, it is. It's a baby step. Guys, w- w- even if the government isn't out and out rewarding sin, the flesh always is. The flesh is always telling you it's gonna be good, it's gonna be great, you're gonna enjoy it. This'll make you happy. This'll give you what you're looking for. This'll make you feel like a man, this'll make you feel like a success. This'll make your parents proud. This is the missing piece that you've been itching for 20 years. Some of you may have heard before Wow, it's 10.13. We're going to make sure to get out of here in time for kickoff at (laughs) 3.15. I'm going to have to speed through the last two points. That's okay. Because of how cold northern and central Alaska are, where Eskimos live, they can't operate off of vegetation to get their food. They have to hunt. And so wolves are naturally a huge problem for Eskimos because wolves want to eat the same things that the Eskimos were trying to hunt and eat. So they have to get rid of wolves. And Eskimos learned hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago, if there's a wolf nearby, how to get rid of it. They take a knife and they dip it several times in whale blubber, allowing, pulling it out each time, allowing the air to freeze the whale blubber. And then they go and take that knife and bury the handle in the ice and snow, leaving the blade out. The wolf smells something yummy, and it comes and it licks, and it licks, and it licks until its tongue is numb from the cold. And it cannot feel the pain when the blubber is gone and its tongue gets cut. It has no idea that it's cut and the wolf bleeds out right there next to the knife and dies. And Satan still loves to tell you that that knife is tasty and there won't be any bad consequences. One of the reasons we sin, guys, is because we've sinned so many times without seemingly without dire consequences. We tell ourselves, oh, I got away with it last time. God didn't throw me into hell. That's called cheap grace, right? Paul says in Romans, shall we go on sinning that grace may abound? God was gracious. He didn't throw me into hell. I'm doing fine. I I can do whatever I want. Paul says, no, 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 that's not even the heart of a Christian. Something cataclysmic did happen the very first time you did it, and you didn't see the consequences. Something shook in the heavenlies. God was dishonored. And that is bigger than any of us can wrap our heads around. So I want to challenge you, if you love Jesus, to bring something into your self-talk. When you are tempted to sin, say to God and to yourself, say this out loud if you have to. This isn't in your notes. You're going to have to write it down if you want to remember it. I refuse to exchange lasting joy for short-term pleasure. I'm not doing it. Some people have shirts that say, not today, Satan. It's kind of like that. When you are tempted... Say it out loud if you have to. I refuse to exchange lasting joy for short-term pleasure. That's stupid. I'm not doing that. I want the rewards my father has waiting for me in heaven. I want the pleasure of my father right now. I'm choosing the better portion. Secondly, note takers, when we truly know God, we resist antichrists. When we truly know God, we resist antichrists. Look at verse 32. He will flatter and win over who? Those who have violated the covenant. But the people who know their God will be strong and resist him. Guys, that is the most hope-filled verse in this entire chapter. He didn't say, if you're really strong and you stand up against deceit, I'll let you into heaven. You you have to be strong enough on your own, and then I'll let you into heaven. That is not what he said. In fact, Jesus, talking about the end times, Matthew 24, 24, he says the Antichrist will go out to the four corners of the earth to deceive, if possible, God's chosen ones, the elect. Do you think Jesus Christ stutters? I trip over my words all the time. Jesus And by his Holy Spirit, having Matthew write it down, do you think it was an accident that Jesus said that at the end, a deceiver is going to come to deceive? And he puts in, if possible. If possible, God's chosen ones. Jesus is reiterating what was already shown to Daniel. When you have tasted the better portion, when you know that you know that you know that he's on his throne and he's good and he loves you and his cross is sufficient, you don't trade out the filet for the McRib. I know some of y'all love the McRib, but it's not filet, okay? The Bible over and over and over says there are some people you just can't touch. Look at Saul of Tarsus. You beat him. You torture him. You try to kill him, but he ends up surviving, getting stoned. And what what does he say? To live is Christ; to die is gain. But like, you can't touch him. It's not just because he's some superhero. Like he, he he has tasted of the goodness of the risen Christ. And here's an illustration of, of what I think it looks like. Dads, the reason it's so important to take care of your baby girl, to love her, to take care of her, to listen to her, I'm not saying I do any of these things well, I'm just saying it's important, is that someday, some punk young man is gonna walk up thinking he knows something and goes, oh, she's cute. And in this moment, Your daughter either has a filter of, this is how I should be treated as a daughter of the king, or she does not. My job is to make sure that when a guy walks up to my daughters and he's got the googly eyes or she has the googly eyes or whatever, and he asks her out on a date, that she immediately knows, senses down in her bones, Does he treat me like dad treats me? Does he treat me the way dad treats mom? That is the filter that we give to our children. Our sons are the same thing. Our sons are the exact same thing. The way Emily and I treat each other is going to tell Gabriel, this is what I should expect, hope for, work toward one day in, in my relationship. So, so the, the, here, here's what I'm saying is going on for the Christian. When Jesus has treated you so well, you know what happens when false gods walk up? Oh, no, 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 no. You want me to serve you. Jesus served me through the cross. He served me first while I was a rebel. No, I've got a God already. He's way better than you. Thanks, but no thanks. Third, and I've got no time for it, so we're just gonna fill in the blank and pray. Persecution is refining. Refining persecution is refining. Allow me to just encourage you to go study James chapter one this week where he says, consider it pure joy when you suffer trials and hardships of many kinds because it's doing good things in your character. And it says this here in Daniel 11 as well, which is why I put it in here. I'm gonna pray for us because we've gone long and then I'm gonna share a few family announcements. Holy Spirit, give foundation and insatiable hunger and thirst for righteousness. Put us in a spot, God, where we are distracted from our hobbies because we've been reading the word so much. Put us in a spot where we're three weeks behind on our very favorite Netflix show because we've been busy loving our wife or our husband or our parents. God put us in a spot where we've not been able to do the things we normally are passionate about because we are busy serving the poor, the weak, the marginalized, the fatherless. Do this for the blessing of Citrus Heights. Do this for our greatest joy and do it to glorify your great name through us the precious, beautiful, strong name of Jesus. We ask for all of this, God's people said.